Uh, let's turn to Psalm 41, please. I don't know if you need an outline. I think some of y'all had them. Ricky, you passing them out, were you? Thank you, if you did, or whoever did. <laughs> I saw. I know people have them, so. Uh, but there's some back there, some up here, if you'd like one. Psalm 41. We have made it to the end of Book One. I don't know if you knew there's different books in the Psalms, and we're at the end of Book One here this evening. All three elements. Um, in that now familiar psalm's outline of moving from fear to faith. We do that by focusing on the facts. All three of those are present here in Psalm 41. David expresses his fear. David um, chooses to focus on the facts. And finally, David rests up in a place of faith. And they are all present here in Psalm 41, but they're a little bit out of an order. And this one, he's going to present the facts first, actually, um, and then, then describe his fear before he closes this song and closes this book, this section of the Psalms, um, by making a decision. I'm going to put it a little differently than we have. Making a decision to live in faith. If you're there, Psalm 41, let's read it. It says, Blessed is he that considereth the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he shall be blessed upon the earth. And thou wilt not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. Thou wilt make all his bed in his sickness. I said, Lord, be merciful unto me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. Mine enemies speak evil of me. And this is what they say. When shall he die and his name perish? And if he come to see me, he speak of vanity, his heart gathereth iniquity to itself, and when he goeth abroad, he telleth it. All that hate me whisper together against me, against me do they devise my hurt. An evil disease, say they, cleaveth fast unto him, and now that he lieth, he shall rise up no more. Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. But thou, O Lord... Be merciful unto me, raise me up, that I may requite them. By this I know that thou favorest me, because mine enemy doth not triumph over me. And as for me, thou upholdest me in mine integrity, and you set me before thy face forever. So blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting and to everlasting. Amen and amen. Before we study this, let's pray. All right, Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us together tonight, whether it's here or whether it's viewing on live stream or even somebody might be viewing this days, weeks, years from now on, on YouTube. But uh, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit, wherever the, the environment is, your Holy Spirit would be present and, and do his powerful work of illuminating the truth of God's word. Open our, our hearts, as David prays in Psalm 119, open our hearts, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. Uh, thank you for giving us your active living word that is uh, as sharp as a two-edged sword, piercing even to the divine and son of soul and marrow. God, um, I pray that you would uh, help us to understand what we're reading tonight, uh, be informed, give us insight, but I pray even more so we'd be transformed, that our, that, uh, our spirit would yield to your Holy Spirit in a response that would please you in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 41, David declares the facts. Okay, it's a little different this time. It's not fear, facts, faith. He's going to declare facts first here in verses 1, 3. There's a principle and there's a promise. If you look at verse 1, it says, Blessed, uh, in the King James, Blessed is he that considereth the poor, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Hebrew word for blessed 
or I said blessed. Um, the Hebrew word for that is esher. And what it means is this, how happy. It's the first, first, verse, first word in the whole book of Psalms. Um, Psalm 1-1, blessed is a man. So it, it means how happy. If you've got a modern translation, it might actually say that. It means how happy. Well, who's happy? According to verse 1. Who's happy? Well, the person that considers the poor. Well, who's poor? Is this talking about dollar signs? Is it fi financially poor? Well, yeah, it, it, it would include that, but not entirely. The Hebrew word for poor there is dal, and it means this, the low, the weak, uh, the needy. So yeah, it would include those who have financial need for sure, but it would also include those who have other needs. And quite often, especially in the Psalms, if you come across that, uh, that word poor, and it's going to refer to just that. Um, anybody who's low, anybody who's meek, anybody who's needy. Um, people who, God is their only hope. <laughs> people who recognize that, their need for God in their lives. Now, that would include you and I, right? I pray that you've recognized your need for God, uh, your need for salvation by Jesus Christ. Um, so much more than salvation. Here's a couple of facts in verse 1. We're all needy people. Every single person that's born in this world, you're a needy person. For salvation, no doubt. Uh, you're needy to keep that next heartbeat is because God says so. That next breath is because God says so. Your ability to get up in the morning and tie your shoes is because God gives you that ability. We're that level of dependence. So every human being is this way. We're all needy people. We're all dependent on God, whether we realize it or not, whether we recognize it or not, for temporal, for physical things, but also for spiritual and eternal life as well. And then the second thing is uh, what it said at the second part of verse 1. Uh, Blessed is he that considereth the poor. How happy. Why is he happy? The Lord will deliver him in, in time of trouble. So those who consider others in this state will know happiness and blessing. And we're going to get in the second part of verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 3 gets really specific about what those blessings look like. But first of all, what does it mean to consider the poor? Uh, that word, we, what does it mean to consider something? To think on it. But again, in Hebrew, it's so much more than just thinking. It's, it's about... Uh, it's about doing something for someone. It's about instructing them. It's about aiding them. It's about propelling them to success and deliverance and also happiness. And we actually hear this principle here, um, caring, caring for people like this. Blessed is he who considers the lowly, the meek, the needy. We hear it from Jesus in Matthew 5 in a Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 3 and Matthew 5, 7, two of those very famous verses there. Uh, almost echo this psalm. Matthew 5, 3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, not talking about money. It's the poor in spirit, the lowly, the meek, the people who recognize that they need Jesus Christ. That, that person is going to be blessed. And then verse 7, Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, uh, for they shall obtain mercy or they shall receive mercy so jesus there in those two passages along with david here in psalm 41 1 he gives us not just a principle but also accompanies it with a promise needy people are those who inherit eternal life that's what jesus said matthew 5 3 blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of god well is this everybody's needy does that mean everybody inherits the kingdom of god no not necessarily it's you have to recognize your need of god um it's not that all needy people are saved, but I'll tell you this, all saved people are needy people. All saved people are people who've recognized that they have a need for Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. <laughs> Some moment in time when you're, you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ that we've been preaching on Sunday mornings that we've gone through the book of Mark, and you said, he did that for me. Your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. God's wrath is satisfied. <laughs> 
Jesus, thank you. You see your need for him. Uh, and so uh, the other thing, a component of there is those who have received God's grace, well, they're merciful. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 7, for they will obtain mercy. And this is what David's saying here in Psalm 41, the second half there, uh, verse 1, the Lord will deliver him in his time of trouble. This is God's promise through David too. If we will consider the poor, meaning to instruct them, to aid them, to propel them, uh, to recognize their need, to uh, propel them to deliverance, salvation in Jesus Christ, well, he will deliver us in our time of trouble. Uh, the principle in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and here is if you give mercy, you get mercy. If you give mercy, and if you've gotten mercy, you ought to be given mercy. Um, that's what we, we see here both in, in David's, um, David's initial verse or two, uh, and then also with Jesus Christ in Matthew 5. Verse 2, the Lord will preserve him. See, David gets real specific here about the form of mercy. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he shall be blessed upon the earth. You will not deliver him into the will of his enemies. So what kind of mercy can we expect when we're merciful, when we consider the poor, when we're full of mercy? Uh, well, we get God's preservation. The Lord will preserve him, it says in verse 2. We also get God's provision. He shall be blessed upon this earth. We get then his protection. Thou will not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. Should we ever find ourselves laid up with some physical illness? We've got verse 3. The Lord will strengthen him upon the bed of languishing. This is my prayer for Mr. Lynn. I sent Miss Ann and David a text earlier when I found that out. It says first right here. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of languishing. That will make all his bed in sickness. So if we ever find ourselves in this position, um, God is promising here. God will be the source of strength in that. It doesn't say from that. It doesn't say you'll be delivered from it. It says he will strengthen him uh, on the bed of languishing. It doesn't say you'll never be on one. <laughs> But God will strengthen you on that bed. He'll be your source of strength there. And then the second phrase, you will uh, restore him to, to health. And King James says, that will make all his bed in his sickness. But that's the idea. You're going to restore him to health. And you're like, gotcha. Has it ever happened where that's not been the case? To be honest. Has a Christian ever not experienced this? Okay, but so we understand that this has got to include something else, right? And that's when we get, oh yeah, those times that didn't happen. <laughs> that, was the best, that was the best restoration ever. That was a full and final and complete restoration to health. You know, we had our mindset, of course, because we're human and God knows that. He knows we're but dust and we're like praying, we're fervently and we're leaning on God's promise. You're going to restore him up. And God can do that. But if we were really praying for full and complete healing... God's never broken that promise. Some got it for a time here and now. Some got it completely and forever. And we'll see them again. I can't wait till that day. Oh, what a great God we serve that he does this, that he always keeps his promises. It's difficult for us to comprehend that. It is. I'm not saying it. That's why we're going to be talking about this Sunday night. I need it right now. We're going to start a series grabbing a hold of heaven. We need to know what heaven is. What to expect there. God's not given us a whole lot of details, but he's given us enough where our faith can be firm. And I think sometimes we just forget them. Uh, we let popular culture give us ideas of what heaven's like, and it's not congruent with God says. 
in his word, and so I'm excited about that. It, this is what we need to believe, that God always does, does this in verse 3. Now, David describes his fear in verses 4 to 9. I said, Lord, be merciful unto me. So David starts, this is the first prayer here. So far, he's, David's just been talking. It's like a song where you just speak truth or testify. Now he prays. I said, Lord, be merciful unto me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against thee. At the very start of this fear section here, David does what he typically does, how he usually starts uh, the Psalms. He turns in prayer to God, to the one who has been faithful in delivering him in the past. Think of the times in David's life when God had been faithful to him. When he trusted God, and God came through, saved him with a lion and a bear, right? Killed a lion and a bear when he's protecting his uh, father's sheep, and he's got to go up against Goliath, big country up there, and took care of him. God took care of him. Think of all the times God had delivered David from Saul, chasing him, from Saul's army, from Doeg. Time after time, God had done this for David. So he's turning in prayer to him now. Again, he said, be merciful to me, Lord. Um, if we know the context of this psalm, like I don't know if it was written on this occasion or shortly after, but and uh, we won't take time to turn there, but 2 Samuel 15 and 16 is a historical background of this psalm. Time near the end of David's life, when he went through a really painful time, his son Absalom rebelled against him. He had a coup attempt, tried to kick him out of the kingdom, take the throne. Uh, David's describing his fear here, and we're going to see now in verses 5 through 8 about the power of the tongue. That's how it all started. 2 Samuel 15 and 16 um, you know, there's, there was problems with David and Absalom, and Absalom had to run away. Um, David invited him back, and he came back, and he thought there was restoration there. But you know what Absalom did? He sat outside the gate of Jerusalem, sat outside the gate, and when people would come, and they'd say, um, hey, I've got a case to bring before David. My neighbor's acting crazy, and I want him to decide the case here. Um, Absalom would say, I wish I could help you. David said, don't let anybody in. He's really busy, you know, being king. Uh, if I were the king, I would heal, I would hear your case, I would take care of you, I would give you justice. Like a politician, right? That's what he said. <laughs> over and over, everybody, no, you can't, David's too busy for you right now. Maybe in November he can get you, I don't know. But he said. And uh, he turned, it says in, in that passage, he turned the entire nation heart against David with words. Look at what he says here in verse 5. My enemies speak evil of me. This is what they say. When shall he die and his name perish? According to verse 4, like there was some physical ailment in David's life, even when he had to flee. David eventually has to flee. The coup attempt works. They come, they raid the palace. David has to get out, you know, with as much family as he can, with as much friends. He's trying to send friends away and everything else to try, probably try to hide, be incognito. He's on the run for his life here. And, and David even says in verse 4, uh, he confesses his sin there to God. So in this, in this section, verses 4 to 8, we got a, a confession of sin. It doesn't say what specific sin. <clears throat> I don't know if there was one. I kind of wonder if David was thinking back to uh, the whole Bathsheba Uriah thing. God had forgiven that. But Satan likes to bring that up when we go through difficult times. And David pleads here. He confesses his sin. He calls for God's salvation. In verse 4 and verse 5, he, he talks. This is my fear. My fear is caused right now. By the power of the tongue, the negative power of it. I got enemies speaking evil of me. They're saying things like this. When shall he die and his name perish? 
not just enemies, but his own son, is saying things like this. Uh, if he come and see me, he speak of vanity. That's exactly what happened. You know, that's how it started. David, uh, when, when the coup attempt got off, Absalom came to David and said, I, I had promised God when I was away from you, I had promised God I was going to go make a sacrifice to him over in that city, and I need to go do it. And what do you think, David? You're going to go to church? Yeah, do it, bud. So proud of his son. going to go worship God. This is what happened. And he comes to see me speak of vanity. His heart gathereth iniquity to itself. And when he goeth abroad, he telleth it. All that hate me, the majority of the kingdom turned against him. All that hate me, they whisper together against me. Do they devise my hurt? An evil disease, say they, cleaveth fast unto him. And now that he lieth, he shall rise up no more. At this point, I mean, David's on the run. I don't know if he's got that disease while he's on the run. I don't know if this is just rumor at the time. Uh, and uh, it, it was difficult for him. The descriptions here in verses 5 to 8 of the power of the tongue, the hatred and evil David experienced from the words of his enemies, substantial. You remember when you were a kid on a playground, people were calling you names, and what would you say? Sticks and stones break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Did they? Yeah, names hurt. Do words hurt sometimes? Can words be powerfully destructive? Sometimes listen to this verse from Proverbs. David's son, Solomon, writes this. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Are words powerful? How did God create everything we see? Words. How does God save? His word, living word, Jesus Christ. His written word where we find the gospel. How does God even sustain our lives? In Hebrews 1, 3, it says Jesus Christ upholds this entire universe, those cells that are your, your form and your body, Jupiter staying where it needs to in its orbit by the word of the power of Jesus Christ. He's saying, stay put, sustain, sustain. Words are powerful. Isaiah 55, 11. Uh, God says, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish all that I please. Now, God's word is powerful. Human words, not as powerful as God's words. But are they still powerful? I think we can see in Psalm 41 how this is. Do you see what's happening here? David, a man after God's own heart, who's written 40, 40 songs so far. He's wrapping up, wrapping up book one, and doubt is creeping into his life. Fear, he finds himself in a place of fear, and it's initially because of words. At least it started with words. <laughs> it doesn't always end with words. That's the problem. That's why it's so powerful. That our tongues, that our words have a powerful role in either speaking life or speaking death to ourselves. We can actually speak that to ourselves or to other people. Absalom lied. Propaganda was put out. Turned the whole kingdom against David. Still sticks and stones? All started with word. Not just words. David's now on the run. He's homeless. The day before, I was sitting in the palace on the throne that God promised. Now I'm running for my life. David's unemployed. He's got an army pursuing him. An army led by his son is trying to kill him. This is the thing. Words always have actions. It's not just words. Words are a catalyst for actions. Do we see that today? That words can be a catalyst for actions. 
The words can be powerful. Here's some words. They're thrown out there all over today. Defund the police. Bad actions happen from those words. All cops are bad. I'm going to keep it G-rated. <laughs> Do we see? Yeah. How about this? Gender and sexual identity, they're up to each individual. It's a choice that you make. Does that have a potentially powerful negative effect? I'd say so. I got a new um, poll came out across my thing from convention today. It said 22% of evangelicals. And I'll say that, yeah, it's something you can just choose, whatever you want to be. People who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what it means to be evangelical. They self-identify that way. It's obviously they don't understand it. What about pedophilia? It's not a sin anymore. It's not a crime. It's not a disorder. It's just a natural preference. Or socialism isn't communism. Or that freedom is unimportant. How many, how many lives have been lost because of the words that communism is a valid option? A lot of lives have been lost because of that. Horrible acts. You know, um, when Nazism rose in Germany, all those people, that genocide that happened, all those people killed, murdered, didn't, the, that plan didn't come up in like a military operations room. People didn't get together and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. It started long before that with words. Started in that century prior when philosophers like Friedrich Nietzsche said, God is dead. There's no point in living. We're just here, get what's, get what's yours, be happy, get whatever you can. There's no God, don't worry about God. And you have that nihilism says there's no point in existence, and that's why you can have genocide. It started with Darwinism. It did when it says there is no God. God didn't create anything. It was all that just happened on its own. And then humans aren't special anymore. Life isn't special anymore. And so to wipe out a whole race of people doesn't really matter anymore. See, these words that were spoken in universities, it led to people developing what happened in the Holocaust. It led to people accepting what would happen in the Holocaust. It leads to the crazy stuff we're seeing today with no regard for the sanctity of human life. Words are powerful. They've got um, the power of life and death, as Solomon said there in Proverbs 18.21, and it's really, it's the cause of David's fear. It's causing him to doubt God. James says in James 3, 3 through 6, our tongues, our words, it's like a, a bridle. And it can guide a horse. It can guide a boat if it's used properly. Or... It cannot be a life-giving thing. It can be a death-dealing thing. That's like a destructive wildfire. That's what James says. Slow spark, and now you've got a wildfire. We're seeing them as well. It wasn't just people's words. Uh, that, that's enough to cause David fear because the words led to actions like this coup attempt and, and everything that went on there. But verse 9, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, he's lifted up his heel against me. See, there's the action, but it's so much more than just action here. It's, it's betrayal. It's treachery. The power of the tongue was enough to put David in a place of fear, but here's one worse, the power of treachery. And it's probably referring to Absalom, no doubt. His son betrayed him. But even Ahithophel, 
one of his most trusted counselors. This was Bathsheba's father-in-law. David trusted what he said, his advice, and he left and defected to Absalom. Verse 9 is also referenced by Jesus uh, to describe one of the 12 disciples, to describe Judas. Jesus, Jesus experienced this betrayal. You know, the one I ate with, the one who puts his hand in the cup with me is the one who betray me. Jesus experienced it. David experienced it. And actually, Jesus promised that we would too. Now, this reference, Mark 13, 12 to 13, is talking about what's going to happen in the tribulation. But I'll tell you, this has happened already in our history, the history of the church. It's happening right now. Praise the Lord, not here in America, but I can't tell you it won't. It's happening in other nations. Mark 13, 12 to 13. Now, this is a promise of Jesus Christ. Now, the brother will betray the brother to death, and the father, the son, and the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death you will be hated for all men for my name's sake but that he that endures to the end the same shall be saved wounding words and traumatic treachery is what has put david in this place of fierce that's what satan wants he wants us to be in despair he wants it to suppress our knowledge of the facts david just spent the first three verses talking about he wants it to keep us from living in faith i know cheery thoughts on a wednesday night right no, it's important because I think this is what, the Psalms are so relatable. Is anybody going through this? Wounding words? Have you? You might be in them now. Been betrayed by somebody close? Maybe you have in the past. Maybe you are right now. Jesus promises that it's going to be that way. He was. David was. All right, so here's the thing. This is why it is a cheery thing. What do we do when this happens? We've got the rest of this psalm to give us what we do. All right, we focus on the facts already, verses 1 through 4, but it's verses 10 to 13, and it's this. David decides for faith. Listen to me. Deciding for faith is always, it's that. It's a decision. If you stay in fear, that's a decision too. So if you choose not to decide for faith, you're deciding to just stay in a place of fear, in a place that steals God's glory, in a place that uh, strips you of any joy that God's designed for your life. Or you can decide to focus on the facts and then to ascend to faith. Always a decision. What am I going to focus on? God and his promises? Unbreakable track record of always coming through? Or I'm going to focus on circumstances that cause my fear? Am I going to focus on wounded words? Am I going to focus on painful treachery and betrayal? Of those close to me. So David gives prayer and a proof. He's be praised again here. But thou, O Lord, be merciful unto me. He says just what he said there in verse 4. Be merciful unto me. He moves, I think it's more of a, a faith uh, claiming prayer than it was. I think verse 4 is more of a fear caused prayer, which is okay. It's still prayer. It's good. But now it's like a faith claiming prayer. He prays, be merciful unto me. Raise me up that I may requite them, that I may repay them. Now, does this mean that we're supposed to look for vengeance? No. We have other scriptures that tell us that's not what we're supposed to do. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. It's such a beautiful thing when we can live in an age of grace and we don't have to worry about that. I can give it over to God when I don't. That's an issue. It's not an issue to feel like you want vengeance, right? But to carry it out. Because when I won't give it over to God, I'm saying, if it's a Christian who's betrayed me, who's wounded me with words, I'm saying, Jesus, your blood wasn't powerful enough to handle that one. If it's an unbeliever, and I won't give it over to God, I'm saying, God, I don't think what you're going to do 
in the end of days is powerful enough to handle this. I need to handle this. That's crazy talk, right? And that's not what David's doing here. It's not vengeance. If we look back to 2 Samuel 15 and 16, David does not seek vengeance. He, big rout of the army. Absalom flees. David says, do not kill him. Take him alive. Bring my son back to me. Great mercy and grace extended. Now, that's not what happened. It's what David commanded. So we just know David's heart isn't one to go out and seek vengeance. The, the plans of of evil, sinful men back then. And what's described here in, in verses 4 through 9, they were thwarted by an eternally sovereign God. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, David commands mercy for Ablam. So here's what he means by requite or repay. That I may requite them. Raise me up. <laughs> That's the best, the best uh, repayment I could get. Show them who's in charge. Not me, God. Only God could do this. God, you've promised me that I would be on the throne. And what I'm experiencing here doesn't seem like it fits in there. This cannot be the end. Uh, you've promised me something different. And David says, I want to see it. That'd be, the best, that'd be the best payback ever. Put me back on the throne. That's exactly what God did. Other psalms talk about, a lot of, quite a few psalms talk about this, honestly. David says, man, I can't wait to get back and worship you. That's, a, that's where his heart was. I just can't wait to get back near the palace, near the temple. That's what my heart desires. This is not David's heart here to have vengeance or to repay. David, his prayer here in verse 11, he says, I need proof. That's the vengeance I want. That's the repayment or the requit I want. By this I know that you favor me because my enemy doth not triumph over me. God, give me that proof. I want to see it now, God. That's a, honestly, that's a prayer God loves to answer. We need to pray in God's will. Let's be bold in our prayers. God, let me see this today. David prays that in another psalm. I, I, I want to see your goodness in the land of the living. I know you're good. I know I'm going to have eternity with you forever. But God, can I see it now? That's a prayer of Habakkuk. I know what you've done. Genesis to Malachi. I know what you've done. You parted Red Seas. You parted Jordan Rivers. You made manna. Water came out of a rock. Can I see that today in 2020? That's what... This prayer would be for us. And David says, I want to see this proof here. Verse 11. Then praise. Praise because he's realized God's presence. Verse 12. As for me, you uphold me in, your, in mine integrity. As for me, thou upholdest me in mine integrity. You set me before thy face forever. David focused on the facts back in verses 1 through 3. David says, Man, I know how you've been for me. I know the promise that if I'm merciful, you will be merciful to me. And that's how I've been, my integrity. And I know your presence. You uphold me in my integrity. And you set me before your face forever. That's God's presence. He's like, this focus on the facts, this essential part of moving from fear to faith, that's what pulls me out of this place of fear and it plunks me down in a faith that just rests in you. That's what he says. You set me before thy face forever. You uphold me. I'm on the run, God. It hasn't happened yet. He's still on the run. But he's like, you know what's underneath me? Everlasting arms. Do you know what's covering me? Lord's wings. You set me before your face forever. That's a relationship. That's God's presence. And that's what focusing on the facts will do for you and I too. It positions us in the presence of God. It removes fear. It replaces it with faith. And when you and I come to a place of faith, like it's talking about here in verses 10 through 13, 
When we get there, there's only one thing that's proper and fitting to do. What does David do in verse 13? Praises. Praises. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Is a different blessed. Started out with blessed in verse 1. That was esher. means how happy. This is blessed toward God. It's barach. And it says, literally it means to kneel. I kneel before you in worship. Because you've done this. You're worthy of praise, God. David's been steadied by prayer here, focusing on the facts. God's promises realized. God's presence recognized right there in the midst of his fears. And he proclaims God's great deliverance. And when we do that, we point others. That's what we're here tonight. You might be like, man, I've got it good right now. God's good. I hope so. But maybe you need to point someone else there. It's what we're learning for 41 Psalms now. When you find yourself in places of fear, we focus on the facts. That's how we get to places of faith. And honestly, one of the best ways you can praise God isn't just by singing, isn't just by praying. It's by living, verses 1 to 3. Being merciful to people because you've received mercy. Being gracious to people because you've received God's amazing grace. That's the gospel, isn't it? You ought to be giving it in word, but I'll tell you what, it's powerful when you can be gracious and merciful to someone and they see that gospel in action. Psalm 41 shows us that happiness comes from that. Happiness comes from showing mercy to the needy through instructing them, through aiding them, propelling them to God's mercy, and sometimes through our being merciful to them. And there's happiness in that action itself. I know, I see you all at Second Chance, and when we're doing things like that, I see the ladies when they do the here, there, everywhere, and we have OCC, and we're doing acts of mercy like that, mission projects. It's a fun time, isn't it? People enjoying it. It's the joy of Jesus. I think part of that is because we remember when we're doing that what God's done for us. It's a reminder of that. But it's also promised in verses 1 to 3 that God will preserve you, he'll provide for you, he'll protect you when you live this way. What about that second section, the power of the tongue? Is there words that are wounding you? A pain of betrayal that you have experienced? You're in the middle of it now? Look, Satan wants to use that to veil certain facts that God wants you to see. He wants to pull you out of that. But you've got to focus on those facts. You've got to shift your focus from those wounding words, from that betrayal. Focus on a God who's, who's good. Won't you turn your eyes back to his unfailing promises and his undiminishing presence? You set me before your face forever. Won't you see that you're right now being upheld, like David says there in verse 12. Right now, I'm being held. No, I'm also being wounded with words. I'm also being betrayed. Yep. And right now, you're being held by the everlasting arms, even in the midst of that. And right now, he's set you in his presence. And here's the thing. Once the decision to leave that and go to faith, once that is made, once we quit looking at the despair of fear, and we move to the calm serenity of faith, what are we supposed to do? What we're about to do. I'm going to ask Tommy and the praise team to come up. We're going to worship. That's what we're supposed to do. Worship a God who has always been there for you, who will always be there for you. And that amazing truth, He is for you. He is for you. So let's worship Him this evening.